0: What's the point with Anna Neal and Dan Chisholm?
1: Welcome to episode 5 of What's the Point Music Podcast. This time we'll be looking at what's the point in performing live. Our guest for this episode is perhaps best known for being a drummer with the band The Sundays.
0: After three albums and touring the globe, Patrick Hannon, known to all by his nickname Patch, joined a new band fronted by Sophia Lisbaxter called The Audience. We'll talk about how he changed direction and became a sound engineer and later a tour manager with the likes of Mercury Rev, Newton Faulkner, and Ed Harcourt.
2: I love to see an airport and I see a band and they look like a band. I've actually got people out of their bunk and told them to wash their cereal bowl. A few years back, I was talking to a promoter and he's saying, You know, Live Nation are paying Madonna.
0: What's the point?
1: so we 're discussing live today, and what 's the point of live and the first thing I wanted to ask you was how important was live at the start of your career
2: I think it 's always been the most important thing for me personally you know it 's always the gig that was that was the thing going to gigs and playing gigs that was my my main aim and going into the studio was was sort of a it was good fun, but it was in order to get more gigs. So live has always been absolutely the most important thing to me.
0: And do you sort of sense that that's the, the reason why groups of artists get together and form a band to take the music out on the road? Because they're driven not necessarily by the quality of the music they're producing at that time, but by the fact they want to perform live.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think when you, when you get into a band in the first place, it is a little gang, and going out with your gang and sort of travelling around is, makes it all make a lot of sense. I don't think you actually think it through too much when you're first getting into it. But it's, uh, that's the first thing you want to do is play a gig, more than go into the studio.
0: And what do you remember about those um, first live gigs that you took part in? What was it like as an experience?
2: You know, we got a lot of mates and family down I lived in Fleet. There weren't too many actual gigs. There was the West End Centre, which was uh, which everybody around here knows. If you could get a, get a gig there, that would be kind of the pinnacle. But we we would do like sports bars and leisure centres, and we used to organise gigs at Farnborough Tech when they had a stage there. I don't know if they still do, but just bring in all the PA and the lights and everything, put on our, our own gig. That was it, because th- there were a few pubs you could play, but the circuit was, f- unless you moved out, w- went up to London, yeah, it was a little bit limited, just just relying on the, the actual existing gigs.
1: What was the jump point for you? So you're saying that you played a lot of, you know, the local venues, uh, the, the Farnborough Tech, etc. How did you make that jump from doing those venues to London and some of the bigger gigs that you were doing?
2: Well... The gigs I was doing myself were were with various local bands. I used to, I, I would usually be in about four different bands at the same time, because I was a fairly reliable drummer in the area. But uh, my brother's band was a stage ahead of of uh, what we were doing. He was in a band in the eighties called Jim Jiminy. I would go along and and help them out. You know, carry the the gear in for them and just do the little roadie jobs, which I didn't realise I was doing. I was just there, uh, helping out. <laughs> and I was learning, learning a trade. That's the thing, no one learned. Actually, back then it wasn't, it wasn't a trade. You just sort of, your roadies were your mates or your, your brother. So yeah, I'd go up to London with them. We, we'd get coach loads of people to go up to the um, Covent Garden. There was Rock Garden was, was a gig there. The way they ran it was they would try and get... Um, suburban bands to come up and bring all their mates and that's it and then you, they'd have a good night everyone would pay five quid or whatever it was and uh you'd get paid 50 quid or something if if you're lucky <laughs> so they got
0: the bar takings yeah
2: it was kind of in the, the days of pay to play no way if anyone remembers that that little yes. Uh, movement
1: yes <laughs> Still going, still going. It's, it's, I think London's still like that. Actually, to be honest, I think a lot of the shows. I'm sure are, it is. Bring 250 people or you won't get the gig. Yeah,
2: well, you'd, it would mean you'd get because they would put say three bands on doing the same sort of thing. So you'd get a band from um, I don't know Petersfield who are like poodle rock on, uh, you know, and you'd be you'd be <laughs> second on, and you'd be like a little indie band, try you know, trying to be like Brilliant Corners. So it's a quite an eclectic evening.
1: So now, obviously, you have a very diverse career. We, we can't carry on this interview without mentioning, I, I, have to be, I have to do a disclosure here and say possibly one of my favourite bands, but Patch knows this, <laughs> uh, which is the Sundays. How did, you, how did you come about?
2: It was through my brother and his band, Jim Jiminy. And before they were, hang on, it must have been before they were Jim Jiminy. And my brother moved to Bristol because one of the other guys in the band was at uni- went to university there. So he moved to Bristol just so that he could carry on the band with him. And Harriet and Dave and Paul were all at Bristol University at the same time. This is about 1985. They were mates with them, and I would, go, I would sort of drive my little mini down to Bristol and spend a few days down there and got to know them. When they eventually finished university and moved to London, they were looking for a drummer and they came to me because they knew I played drums. <laughs> I'd actually played Harriet, had actually sung with my brother's band at Farnborough <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm never going to look at Farnborough Tech in the same way again. <laughs>
0: So, yeah, so we sort of all knew each other. Just reflecting on the fact that the way people go about getting a band together, the way a group of musicians got together to form the Sundays is probably very different to the way it would happen for people now because we've got, you know, social media where you can find people for a start.
2: Well, yeah, it was very much who you knew, you know, you'd you'd go, first of all, you'd go to, to people you knew and uh, other people in other bands and there'd, there'd be a, a sort of... A gaggle of, and like I said, I was in a few bands, so I was sort of spreading my uh, the bet. <laughs> scene. I don't know if I was thinking of it like that. It was just, uh, you know, just being in a few bands was more fun. Later in the nineties, it was all through the Melody Maker. All the all the ads in the Melody Maker there'd be there'd be like two pages of musicians wanted, no breadheads. A big saying in those days.
1: Did you just say no redheads? (laughs) No
2: breadheads. Sorry, not not redheads. (laughs) Uh, Redheads were were, were sought after, I'd say. But a breadhead would be like.
0: Yeah, don't go down the redhead thing because otherwise you get Anna on a walkout and that's not good for the podcast. (laughs) I don't
2: know
0: what you mean. Sorry.
2: Yes, yeah, Melody Maker is a big part of of joining musicians together and it was a. you know, if, you, if you'd if look through the section then, it would be bands from all over the country looking for different members. It was, that was the main way, I'd say. It yeah. wasn't in the NME. It was just the Melody
0: Maker. As the band becomes more successful, the amount of kit you have to carry around and how it's transported is a little different. How did your kit size change as a drummer from your beginnings in a band? Well, I used to be able
2: to get my kit into a minivan, and when I had a, a premier kit, and I probably could get a couple of amps in there as well, and probably a bass player in the back. <laughs> so, so, uh, it had a back space. You didn't, didn't shove a the bass head. player in the boot. It didn't have a bulkhead so you could sit. Oh, yeah, there was someone in the back. It was carpeted. It was, it was luxury.
1: I've got so many jokes about rhythm sections in my head going through right now. I keep it very quiet. <laughs> So like, carpet in the back of the van sounds quite luxurious to me. I can't say I've ever experienced that in in a bog standard transit van. But how glamorous would you say your sort of early days of of touring were with the Sundays?
2: Um, the Sundays, we the first tour we did was in a minibus, and I'm not sure. I think we took out the two back the back rows of seats and got the drums and the amps in there. We didn't have a lot of gear, to be honest. It wasn't a massive amount. And then it was just a standard minibus, so you had to take all the gear out at night because it, it wasn't protected like the splitter bands vans these days, where it's all locked up and sectioned off in the back. My brother's band did build their own splitter bus, but it was kind of like a semi camper. It had sort of bunk beds in it, and then a section for instruments, and then a middle section with some seats. And we we used that with a few different bands for a while. It was sort of quite a thing to have a splitter bus
1: so i'm sensing origins of your obviously you work as a tour manager now yeah. and i'm sensing already the origins of being a tour manager from the very start here
2: early on post sundays i was i was in a few different bands and i would be the one putting the budgets together for the tour and sort of organizing the hotels if they had if we had hotels and accommodation and, and booking the booking my brother's splitter van (laughs) and uh, (laughs) I mean it was my my budgets then were looked like a school project it was all handwritten on a4 and stapled in the corner and then handed into the to the A&R man who would give us our whatever it was 273 pounds in cash to go and do the five dates (laughs) or whatever it was (laughs) but yeah I took on that I took on that side of things you know fairly early on and made sure that we were getting paid at the gigs, and if there was any rider sorting that out and getting dinner and all the, all those sort of things i was I tended to be the one who 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 uh, organized that so yeah, I guess it was sort of a pro- progression from there i wasn't involved in in, in that side of th- things with the with the sundays or I would, I would turn up and there would be, you know, fairly early on we had a... After the first tour we had a proper tour manager and split a bus and hotels and things. It kind of progressed quite fast
0: into proper touring, so to speak. I don't really sort of envisage somebody who's sitting behind a kit playing at a gig thinking about the best route to become a manager and that, you know, something switches somewhere along the way for you to effectively become poacher turn gamekeeper. <laughs>
2: Well, I suppose I've never been a manager-manager. I've always been a tour manager. So um, it was probably more le- later on. I, was, I, I started out, to, f- my transition from a, from a musician into a, to a crew was to a sound engineer. So I, I did sound in the early 2000s. I got a lot of folk stuff. So I was doing Steel Ice Band, Maddie Pryor, and a lot of bands associated, associated around them and doing nice theatre tours. And it was, it was a good chance to learn a trade away from the world that I'd been in. So I'd been in the indie world, but I didn't do any sound engineering for the indie world until uh, a couple of years after I'd started doing sound engineering in the folk world, which is it's an excellent model for, for touring the folk world. They just, they just keep touring. And they, they put records out and it's, they just tour at the, at the level they want. Um, and they've got very nice fans who always come to see them every time they come round. And it was, a, it, was a good, it was good to learn all about doing live sound in that environment. And then later, after a couple of years, Simon from, uh, from Belly Union came to me and he said, oh, you're doing sound. If you come out and do sound for some of my bands... You could also you know do i wouldn 't even call it tour managing. you could kind of look after things on the road and it was, it was tour managing basically man mm. <laughs> doing sound mm. so uh, i I kind of got dragged into it accidentally
0: but I guess that that, that sort of informs you um, a great deal and enables you to help artists who are embarking on the journey you know going out to perform live for the first time that you're able having been through it and seen it from all sides to be in a place to better inform them
2: well I think being a musician for 15 years beforehand and and being in situations on tour that I did like situations that I didn't like I knew what artists wanted if you go on a tour and it's all travel lodge hotels you know that the person who's booked those hotels isn't on the tour. There's someone who is sitting in an office d- doing something else while you're on tour. So- I'm
1: laughing because I booked Travel Lodge for my tour just because <laughs> it was cheap.
2: <laughs> you may have done for, you know, for financial reasons, but when it goes beyond it and you're, it's actually sending you mad then it's not something you're going to continue doing for for a long period of time, but i th- I think it's it's little th- small things that make a big difference on a on a tour and if you know what makes people happy, what makes yourself happy on a tour, then you can you can sort of make it run like that. It doesn't necessarily have to cost a lot more money; it just needs a bit more thought. I think that's what I could put into it, and also. You know working with indie bands is is very important to to get them to a level where they're they're not just doing a gig if they want to progress to doing bigger things they need to put on a show and I think that's something I've always pushed with the bands. I won't ever have the lead singer coming on in a changeover and f- plugging in his pedals while all the crowd who are there waiting to see their you know favorite band are like watching this guy plug in his pedals at the front of a stage so I'd make that stop immediately so i'd make the bass player do it <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> so there's some element of of creative involvement with what you're doing in terms of being a tour manager there how much involvement do you, would you say you have in terms of the to show ability, what what they're doing on stage and how they're controlling their pedals.
2: Yeah, well, I think it's as much as as you feel comfortable with inputting to them. If the, if they know what they're doing, then you're going to leave them to it. If the, if it's all happening, it's all going well. But if you see things like that happening, you think, ah, oh, this is just this can be so easily changed. We could we could do a changeover. Make, maybe take a few more minutes more. I could run down and do a bit of plugging in. Then the band come on properly, with all their gear. They start playing. Everything's working. That's one of the, the most important parts of a gig: the beginning, the, the first part. You know, <laughs> when a band comes on and you can't hear certain things for the first half of the song, and it's basically a bad sound check for their first song. That's fine. Everyone ex- expects that. But if you come on and they sound amazing from the first bar, then that's unexpected in some ways. And, it, and it, it just puts that band on that slightly higher level. And next time they can just nudge it up every time, just become you a know, better live band and actually end up putting on a proper show.
1: So being the tour manager puts you on the other side of the fence, doesn't it? In yeah. terms of your role in live. Do you miss performing
2: Oh yeah, I, c- I couldn't say that. I I wouldn't have liked to just continue being a drummer and just having that lifestyle. I think that would have been fantastic. There's no way, there's no <laughs> way around that. But I think it's been good for me to see every side of the of the business and be able to try it, like make a little bit of a difference for some bands. Maybe yeah, see it from that side. I don't rule out going back to. Playing drums and you know live, and I've, I hope to do that. You know, it's, but it's something you can you can go back to. But it's uh, yeah, it's been a a good experience uh seeing the other side of things. Definitely, yeah.
1: Because it's interesting because you've had quite a lot of success with two separate bands, not just the Sundays, but obviously with the audience as well. And both of those kind of came to a, a natural sort of end point. And I wondered. Was that part of your motivation for also moving into other areas of of live production?
2: Well, I think particularly with with the audience, we always had top crew. We we often shared crew with with Manic Street Preachers and a few other top bands that were on the same management. At that point, we were trying to you know we we're trying to make it was it was one of the last times of a of big record contracts. So where you've got two hundred thousand pound record contract which sounds like a lot of money, but you've got to make, get have six people living on that for 18 months and make an album and et cetera, et cetera. But one thing I did notice was that the crew, whenever we were like, oh, sorry, lads, the money's run out. You're going to have to go out on the, uh, on the road and just do it for pediums and blah, blah, blah. They never said that to the crew. The crew were like, <laughs> they wouldn't have turned <laughs> up. They're not turning up unless they're getting their daily daily uh, fee plus per diem and hotel and everything. So I was like, hang on a minute. That could be quite a nice little job. You know, I know what I'm doing. Mm. I know all these people. I tend to hang out with the crew as a drummer on a tour more than the band because, uh, to be honest, they're more fun mm-hmm. than the rest of the <laughs> <band>. <laughs>
0: What sort of lessons do you think that you learned from your days in a band, which would be important to impress on those setting out on that journey now?
2: Mm, yeah, interesting.
0: That's what I have
2: been able to impart onto, onto bands from my experience as a musician. And I've been able to see the pitfalls and, you know, how much money is wasted on silly things. You know, if you're only going to be in a hotel for a few hours, then there's no point having a really nice hotel. But it, if you're going to be there for a couple of days, it's nice to maybe spend a bit more money. It's, it's all the little things on a tour that makes, makes the difference. I don't know what, what I would impart necessarily to young bands now, because it's hard. It is very different. It's a very different uh, landscape now to,
0: a, to when I was starting out. You have people who can find themselves as a group of people, um, whether that's a solo artist with supporting musicians or as a band, where people can be living in each other's pockets 24-7 for a, a period of time, you know, when you're getting to the stage where you're touring. And actually, that that in itself can be quite stressful, even on people who are very good friends.
2: It, it is, enough uh, you find there, there are touring people who know what, know how to deal with stuff and then there are people who struggle and you can see that with certain people and it, it, it can come out in different ways it can come out in, in you know too much excess sometimes or just they don't look happy a lot of the time but i try and make sure that people know that they need to look after their their own stuff no one else is actually going to you know that we haven't got a social worker on tour they do actually have to look after themselves and they've got to say if they're if they're struggling and they've got to look after their own kids the thing is when people just don't respect the bus leave a lot of rubbish around and bring too much stuff with them that's that's a that's always a big thing when I work with Mercury Rev they're, they're one of my favorite touring bands Jonathan and Grasshopper are both born the same year as me so we we get on really well just because we've, we've been doing it the same sort of length of time and they've seen everything and when you pick them up from the airport what I like about them is that they look like a band they haven't got like crappy, comfortable airline clothes on they come out they've got sunglasses on always they've got like scarves jack- black jackets, black trousers good shoes You've got guitar on them they just look like a band and I, I say that to a lot of bands don't when you're doing a flight you do, if someone's going to see you getting on that flight they might recognize you you look crap you know yeah. oh saw like singer he looked a bit crap <laughs> if you look like a band that's my favorite thing i love to see it i love to see in an airport and i see a band and they look like a band it's commitment. It's commitment to it,
0: and the heads heads turn, don't they? You know, and those who don't know it's a band, the heads turn.
2: Yeah, they do. I mean, you want to see Jonathan oh and Grasshopper? They just they just look proper. I, I, I respect them for that.
1: So, I, I'm just laughing, thinking about the state of me on long haul flights. I <laughs> used to get on the plane with no makeup on because it was like 16 hours with the hood over and my like yoga pants on, and just hide in a corner on the plane and kind of limp off the plane when it landed in Toronto or LA or somewhere. So, I'm just sort of thinking, yeah, maybe that, was, um, maybe that was my downfall.
0: Maybe you need to upgrade your yoga pants, designing design yoga pants or something.
1: I had my slippers, socks and everything. Cool. It was great.
0: Push the boat there. I'm
1: really rock and roll. I know.
2: <laughs> well, maybe it was a lack of commitment to you. To rock and roll there.
1: No, don't tell everyone. They'll know what I'm really like now. <laughs> but it's interesting. Do you think now that this, you, you mentioned that you had record contracts that would pay you £200,000 for your contract for 18 months and you You've touched on the fact that things are different now. Mm. Before the pandemic, how hard was your job as a tour manager? Um,
2: it depends on the band. I don't, and what I don't do is uh, I won't take on a band who have been, had a, had a babysitter before them. So if they've, I don't do alarm calls for bands, I don't clean up after them. I don't bring their stuff to the bus. I, I don't tell them where to eat. I don't, you know, I tell them a time. If they ask me a question that's in the itinerary, they get a very short, sharp message about that. I don't want to, t- I don't want to tell them it twice. So, yeah, I think you've got to be strict in some ways. And then, you know, people, particularly bands, will behave as you treat them so if you treat them you know if you don't give them a hard time about being 10 minutes late in the morning or about that's the way they're going to behave and some certain tour managers because they're just tour managers maybe they tend to ruin certain bands and you'll get you know you get the guns and roses effect they're just they've had everything and you can't tell them anything. But I worked with Sufjan Stevens uh, on a tour, and I was just tour manager, but people were coming up to me. The, the agent was coming up to them, and the rep company was saying, Oh, you got to be really careful with, with Sufjan. He's like really sensitive about stuff. And it's like the first week, it's like absolutely brilliant. He was the one of the best people I worked with. He'd love to hang out after the show. He was always on time. And it's it like, I think he just made the record company think that he was like that so that they would leave him alone. The only thing he ever had, had not told me off about, but advised me, said, just never ask me any questions. I don't want to answer any questions about stuff. Just tell me what to, where to be, what to do, and I'll do it. Just don't ask me anything. Yeah, great. <laughs> Perfect. No. He built a really nice group of musicians around him. He had a support within the band. If you if you were playing up on the tour you wouldn't you wouldn't last.
0: To instill professionalism in people must be really important because I know we've said this before on the podcast, but there are two words, not one, music and business.
2: Mhm. Yeah, I've I've actually got went and gone and got people out of their bunk and told them to wash their cereal bowl that they've left just before going to bed.
1: I'm not messing with you, Pat. You're definitely not.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it must take—you must have to be quite a strong person, have a have, have a you know a strong personality to be able to do that.
2: I think you've got to do it in the right way. That's the thing. You don't want to humiliate people, but you want to make sure that that they know there's a line that you don't cross and leaving anything out. My worst nightmare is bags on seats in dressing rooms and buses. Bags on seats. I don't ever (laughs) want to see that.
1: (laughs) I'm like cowering over here going, no, not me, no, no, no. Don't do that on a train ever, But you walk into a
2: dressing room and you look around and every seat has a bag on it.
1: So I'm interested to know, as a creative, do bands still use being in a gig situation or, you know, rehearsing the concept of live as a creative space to to write new material?
2: Um, Not often, I'd say. I'd say that they do that out of of that situation. You occasionally get a band working on a new song and they might work on it. Over a few sound checks and then pop it into the into the set at some point, but it's not something I don't know if, whether it's just sort of laziness, maybe or uh, it is hard to do that you gotta because sometimes you don't get very long sound checks of as you know, and to to be rehearsing don't yeah, don't start me on that rehearsing during sound checks. <laughs>
1: I guess what I'm getting at is that you know you're you're part of this community in a band, and one of the things that happens is that you write songs as a band as as a collective in your rehearsals and I wonder whether we've slightly lost the art, whether live has become literally just a process that a band goes through they they go and they perform live, and that's it as opposed to it being a creative compositional space
2: yeah I see, I see a lot fewer bands now more you know one or two people and then they bring in the rest, of, the rest of the musicians because it like I was saying when you've got six people in a band it's it's difficult to make it to make it work financially for one thing and as you know personalities and everything it's you know it's hard to keep that going so Probably the consequence of that is that there's fewer bands who just go in and, like, play for a couple of hours and come out with a, a new track. I don't think it happens so much like that. And that's a sh- it's probably a shame, you know, a lot of those songs have a different feel to them than a, than a written song. You know, if you've got a song that's written very much like the way that they put people together, these days writing sessions and then it might go to another level and it might have section you might have end up with 12 15 writers on a song you know if you go and you had four people and they've played it they've jammed it in an afternoon and they've come up with something yeah that's very different things but a little more pure and dare i say a bit more real
0: yeah and when um people have got their Bank of songs to perform, and they 're ready to take it out on the road, or if they 're already out on the road, they get out there we We sort of briefly touched on the issue of that elephant in the room getting paid for performing, and given the issues of the pandemic and the way everything has changed going forward, where do you think we 're at with this? Because it seems like everybody wants bands to play for free. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, everybody needs to get paid
2: well, I think s- since the eighties and the nineties bands do actually go on the road now to make money bit you know established bands whereas they didn 't before i don 't think with the Sundays I was talking to them, and they said we we didn 't make any money we, we made money from records, and then we spent money to go on the road to sell more records to, to you know pr- promote the record. That was what it was all about. I think that changed a lot, obviously, when the same time the income from records started going down, but people started paying more for major bands. There was a whole progression from, uh, particularly with festivals as well, festivals brought in higher fees for certain headline bands. You know, at a festival, you'll see the difference between the headline band and the band band who's you know first on on a small stage is enormous it's a massive massive difference and they're they're both basically doing the same thing probably live fees have gone up i'd say but ticket prices have gone up as well if you look at ticket prices in the 70s and 80s it's like 50p to go and see the jam People wouldn't expect to pay like 150 pounds or whatever that was back then for a ticket. Just wouldn't, unless you're going to see Frank Sinatra on his one of his uh, um, retirement Many farewell tours, tours. Yeah, then, <laughs> uh, at the Albert Hall. Then yes, maybe. But then uh, you know, a few years back, I was talking to a promoter, and he's saying, you know, Live Nation are paying Madonna 110 percent. Of the ticket price. 110%. Wow. 110%. Because wow. the deal is she has to use all of their venues. So they've booked her all of their venues. So they are making so much money on the facilities and the bar and all of that stuff that they probably felt a bit <laughs> sheepish about just giving at the ticket price. But it's that that goes to show what you know what everyone's making it, it at that level. It's just an enormous business.
1: So does that mean that live is now more important than the recorded record?
2: Yeah, it's switched on its head. So the record you need to do a record so that you can tour, which was totally the opposite thing back then. You can't really go. You know, those big artists don't, don't necessarily need to. They'll make money from records, I'm sure, and from all the other things that you make money from, from doing that. But that's not their primary income source anymore.
1: What about for the little guys?
2: Yeah, that's more difficult. I mean, there's different ways to do it. You can, you can um, I think it's easier to sell your records on the road now when we were doing tours in the in the 90s, you, you you couldn't sell your record on tour because that wouldn't go into... The, they'd say, well, it's not going to the charts. Uh, we need to sell it. All the records need to be sold in a record store and it needs to be registered. Then we go up the charts, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the early days of Belly Union, the, the tour support for the band was 10 boxes of CDs. Sell those, that will pay some of your expenses as you go along. <laughs> so so it's, yeah it's uh, it is different but people will buy records physical records more readily on a tour than they will in a shop they'll just do it on spotify or stream it whatever but you go on a tour you if, if a band has got vinyl records they sell more than they would ever sell in a shop probably so it's a uh, it's a good way for a, a medium sized band to, to to pay, you know, to, to make some money.
1: So what I'm interested to know on the back of that is we're going to come into a situation where there are lots of bands ready to play because we've not been able to for a while. There will be yep. limited number of venues possibly to play yep. at because not every venue is going to survive. How easy is it going to be to perform live?
2: I've been trying to prepare people who've been calling me up and saying, look, I've got, I've been offered this, I've been offered that. I don't wanna I don't wanna, you know, I'd say, look, take absolutely everything at the moment. It's gonna be a mess when it all kicks off. It's gonna be an absolute mess. Not only everybody, like you say, is gonna to wanna to start touring at exactly the same time, but we've got the Brexit issues from the UK, but the, the government are trying to work so from, from what I can hear with some of the people in those industries to, to find a solution around these problems, it's on paper, but at the moment, backline is looked upon as commercial goods, where it's, it's obviously not, it's the, it's just tools of the trade. So if you can't take backline into Europe, that's a, that's a major problem. So things like that just need to get sorted out. I hope they will. And there's also the visa problems and all of that, but we'll see.
1: Potence, potentially going to be quite expensive, isn't it?
2: It could be, but it's, it's always been expensive to go to the US to tour. People do it. So it just depends on the money will shift around and prices will go up and down. Different people will pay for different things in different ways. I don't know, but um, it will work itself out. To a, it has to be a workable way of doing things
1: so Pat what is the point of performing live Uh,
2: getting to the bar afterwards (laughs) (laughs) you're not going to do that you're not going to do that if you're you're live streamer you might do but it's not going to be as much fun
1: but in a very realistic and true way (laughs) thank you very much for joining us it's been a real pleasure talking to you today
2: thank you no problem
0: What's the point?